After the disastrous Baker test, the US Navy planned to detonate Charlie. Charlie was to be another underwater test, but unlike Baker which was only 90 feet underwater, Charlie would be 1.6 kilometers underwater. As usual, the Navy and the scientific community were butting heads. The Navy felt that the test should be carried out, but the scientific community felt that it was all, it was all a little unnecessary. The scientists felt that Baker would answer all the questions they had about underwater nuclear explosions. Anyway, while they were still stuck at an impasse, Baker happened. It covered Bikini Island and its lagoon in so much radiation that the Charlie test was cancelled. When we left off last week, it was in 1946 and the military had poisoned its servicemen and Bikini Atoll. After that disaster of a test, the military had packed up and left leaving Bikini Atoll a radioactive junkyard. Now this next part will come as a surprise to most of you. Nuclear testing resumed in 1948 in the Marshall Islands. It wasn't enough to destroy Bikini Atoll, its ecosystem and coral reefs. Between 1946 and 1958, the US detonated 67 nuclear bombs at both Bikini and Enewetak Atolls. In fact, the majority of those tests were carried out after the infamous Baker test. Unfortunately, we'll not talk about all the tests. Instead, we'll talk about the biggest, baddest one, the Bravo nuclear test, which is sometimes referred to as bomb number 12. If you like this podcast, get on Apple Podcasts and leave the show a five-star review. If you want to do more, get on patreon.com forward slash society of strife and leave the show a donation. As I've said before, making this show takes an enormous amount of time and effort. So please get on there and contribute however much you can. If you want if you want to, you can follow the show on Instagram at Society of Strife Podcast. To our new listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you learned something new today and I also hope that you continue to join us on this illuminating journey. That aside, let's talk about Bravo and its aftermath. It was this bomb that would completely change the lives of the people of Rongelap Atoll. By change, I mean destroy. It would destroy their lives. But do the lives of a couple hundred people matter when quote-unquote humanity itself is at stake? Well, I was being sarcastic there. Of course they do matter. Every single life matters. And if, it, and if someone doesn't seem to get that then they don't get to represent humanity. That's just the way it is. In 1948, the United States exploded three bombs in the Marshall Islands. It exploded four in 1951 and two in 1952. The 12th bomb, including Abel and Baker, the first two bombs, was Bravo. This time, the tests were not carried out under Operation Crossroads. Instead, they were carried out under Operation Castle. The point of Operation Castle was different. Unlike Operation Crossroads, whose point was to quote-unquote safeguard humanity, the point of Operation Castle was to test a new kind of weapon. Instead of fission bombs, the US was now testing a deadlier kind of weapon, the fusion bomb. Fusion and fission are polar opposites in every sense of the word. While fission reactions produce energy by splitting atoms, fusion reactions 
produce energy by forcing atoms to merge. The best example of a fusion reaction is the sun. Every second that goes by, the sun fuses hydrogen atoms into helium. While fission reactions take place when heavier elements such as uranium are split apart, fusion reactions primarily involve lighter elements such as hydrogen and helium. In fact, for decades, we have been trying to use fusion reactions to generate power here on Earth. The reason we've been trying to do this for such a long time is this. While fission reactions produce literal tons of nuclear waste, fusion reactions do not produce any waste. They are 100% renewable. The only problem is that they require astronomically high temperatures and pressures to occur. By high temperatures, I mean tens to hundreds of millions of degrees Celsius. What I'm getting at is, by choosing fission over fusion, we took the coward's way out. Had we spent decades perfecting fusion technology instead of fission, the Earth would be a better place. Imagine that, a planet with zero carbon emissions, all the electricity we could use and zero waste. Sounds great, right? Instead, we chose to use an unrefined, maybe unfinished product, and now we can see the consequences, or at least the people who made the decision to use fission left us holding the bug. Just like the politicians who won't do anything about climate change and the rich people flying off to space and then offering up lame excuses afterwards. Not only are those space flights producing a lot of greenhouse gases and damaging the ozone layer, they are also poisoning the ocean when they fall back to Earth and land in the water. That's why scientists are finding exotic metals such as titanium in marine life. As of 2021, China is currently leading the fusion research field. Having successfully tested fusion reactions at two different temperatures for just a few seconds each. The main obstacle when it, when it comes to fusion reactions is producing more energy from the subsequent reaction than you are putting in. That has proved very challenging. That aside, let's get back to the nuclear tests. While fission bombs are referred to as atomic bombs or A-bombs, fusion bombs are referred to as hydrogen bombs or H-bombs. A point of note, while Bravo was the most famous hydrogen bomb, it wasn't the first. The US had tested its first hydrogen bomb, Mike, on Enewetak in 1952. Mike was successful. The only problem with Mike was that it was a vanity test, meaning that it couldn't be used in the event of a nuclear war, mostly because it was as large as a two-story house. So. What led to the creation of Bravo? If you are familiar with the 1950s, then you can guess the answer to that, the Cold War. In the 1940s, when the bikini tests first began, the US was far ahead of the Soviet Union in terms of the Cold War. It didn't take the Soviets long to catch up, though. The Soviet Union set off the world's first war-usable hydrogen bomb in 1953. By war usable, I mean that it was portable and rapidly deployable, and not as large as a house. As you can imagine, the Americans lost their minds. 
after that successful Soviet test. US President Eisenhower could not let the Soviet Union surge ahead, and so Bravo was born, America's first deliverable fusion weapon. By 1954, Bravo was ready. It was going to be the first test in the Operation Castle program. As you can imagine, it meant a lot to the Americans, and for this reason, it was transported to the Marshall Islands under an insane amount of security. A naval ship carried the bomb. The naval ship was flanked by destroyers and planes circled overhead to protect it from the air. The convoy sailed at night with lights turned off and radios silenced. The ships avoided regular shipping lanes as another means to avoid detection. Basically, it was overkill. Scientists placed Bravo on a sandbar near Nam Island at the edge of Bikini Atoll. The bomb itself was protected by a giant steel container with a door at one end. Compared to Mike, Bravo was very small. It was only 1.5 meters wide and 6 meters long. It was small enough to be delivered by plane. As I mentioned in the first episode of the Bikini Tests, which you should listen to before listening to this one, US officials had decided not to evacuate nearby Rongelap Atoll before carrying out the test. In fact, the US did not even bother to notify the islanders on Rongelap before carrying out the tests. Another point of note, when I was researching this series on Bikini, I came across some information saying that US officials decided not to evacuate the islanders deliberately. The article claimed that, similar to Operation Crossroads and its test animals, the officials wanted to see how radiation would affect the local population on Rongelap. I haven't found any evidence supporting this theory, but it wouldn't surprise me because it was in this time period that the US government was carrying out human experimentation. Something that we are going to cover in later episodes, so please make sure you subscribe to the show and tell anyone who is interested in history to listen to this show. Before the explosion, US military weathermen monitored the weather in a massive part of the Pacific Ocean. At lower altitudes, the winds over Bikini Island were blowing toward the west, so scientists expected that the tests would blow radiation westward away from inhabited islands and out into the open ocean. Provided, of course, that the wind didn't change direction, which it did. The night before the Bravo test, weather conditions worsened. Shortly before the detonation, winds at 20,000 feet were blowing eastward, straight toward Rongelap. Based on that, you would have expected the US officials to delay or even postpone the Bravo tests. But that wasn't the case. After all, humanity needed to be protected. Not all of humanity though, just a tiny segment. Dr. Alvin Graves, the scientific director of Operation Castle, had final say. He was the man who had the authority to delay or postpone the Bravo test. Despite being warned that the winds were moving eastwards toward an inhabited island, he made the decision to proceed. On the morning of March 1, 1954, nine American scientists gathered in a heavily fortified concrete bunker 
about 32 kilometers from Nam to detonate Bravo. On a control panel, a button was pushed by one of the scientists. The button started the automatic timer. The nine scientists all stepped back and watched as lights on the control panel flashed from red to yellow and finally green. On Rongelap Atoll, 161 kilometers away from the blast site, children fed chickens and played with dogs. Women prepared breakfast and the men raided their canoes for a day of fishing. They had no idea what was coming. At 6.45 a.m., Bravo exploded with 1,000 times the force of the bomb that the U.S. had dropped on Hiroshima. It was like it contained a small unnatural sun. It created a fireball that was close to 6 kilometers wide, vaporizing part of Nam. On the ocean floor, it left a crater that was almost 2 kilometers wide. Bravo's mushroom cloud soared nearly 40 kilometers high. The mayor of Rongelap, John Anjain, would later describe the spectacle from the island. Quote, I saw what appeared to be the sunrise, but it was in the west. It was truly beautiful, with many colors. Something like smoke then filled the entire sky, and shortly after that, a strong and warm wind, as in a typhoon, swept across Rongelap. All the people heard the great sound of the explosion, end quote. After a few minutes of staring in bewilderment, the islanders returned to their daily routines. We will delve deeper into the story of Rongelap and Bikini later. For now, let's walk calmly through the political storm that was created by the Bravo test. The first thing that US military officials did after Bravo was defend themselves for what they did to the people of Rongelap. The commander of Operation Castle, Percy Clarkson, said, quote, The natives were not evacuated prior to the detonation because, on the basis of information available to us, it was not considered necessary and no fallout was expected in the inhabited areas. End quote. Number one, that was a lie. We know that the officials knew that the wind was blowing towards inhabited areas and yet they decided to go on with the test. Number two, the bomb was bigger and a lot more powerful than both the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the bomb that had irradiated the whole of Bikini Atoll. In fact, the people of Rongelap received as much radiation as did the Japanese who were only 3.2 kilometers away from ground zero. Yet, the people of Rongelap were over 160 kilometers away from the detonation site. Bravo was that powerful. Number three, if it was an honest mistake, then why was the Military and the Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, an American atomic agency established after World War II to regulate peacetime atomic energy, so determined to keep the whole event secret? By the way, at the same time, the AEC was allegedly experimenting on people so they could find out how radiation affected them. We will, we will cover that story later on this show. Anyway, the military and the AEC 
tried to keep the disaster secret until March 11, 1954, when a newspaper in Cincinnati, Ohio, US, broke the story. Under pressure to respond, the AEC released a statement which read, quote, During the course of routine atomic tests in the Marshall Islands, 28 US personnel and 236 residents were transported from neighboring atolls to Kwajalein as a precautionary measure. These individuals were unexpectedly exposed to some radioactivity. There were no burns. All were reported well. After the completion of the atomic tests, the natives will be returned to their homes." End quote. Please remember that the statement was released in March of 1954 because it wouldn't be until 1982 that the U.S. would admit that it had lied. The Department of Defense admitted that the event had been, quote, the worst single incident of fallout exposures in the U.S. atmospheric testing program, end quote. It also admitted that the people of Rongelap had, in fact, suffered acute radiation poisoning. Credit to the American public for the way they reacted after the news about Rongelap was released back in 1954. They were horrified. The White House received more than 100 letters and telegrams each day calling for the end of atmospheric nuclear testing. In November 1958, President Eisenhower declared a temporary halt to additional atmospheric testing. The tests would later resume and continue until 1963. At this point, the question becomes, was the Bravo nuclear tragedy an accident or a cover-up? Let's look at the evidence. Number one, the US military knew that Bravo was a more powerful bomb before they even tested it. In fact, it was the most powerful bomb they had ever tested. And yet, a smaller bomb, Baker, had covered Bikini in radiation. Number two, the US military also knew that the winds were moving towards Rongelap, which was also inhabited. They knew these before the detonation, and yet they did nothing. Number three, the military tried to cover up the events surrounding the disaster and even lied about it to the press. In my experience, making this show for the past nine months, I have come to realize that governments only cover up tragedies when there is some guilt involved. The next part of the story is taken verbatim from the book Bombs of a Bikini, The World's First Nuclear Disaster by Connie Goldsmith. It is a great book. I highly recommend it for anyone wanting to learn more about the bikini tests. That and Nuclear Dawn by James P. Delgado. According to Holly M. Barker, teaching professor at the University of Washington and commissioner for the National Nuclear Commission, Republic of the Marshall Islands, quote, I don't think the incidents surrounding Bravo were a mistake. For smaller tests before Bravo, the United States relocated downwind populations. For the Bravo event, the largest test ever conducted by the United States, the government purposefully decided not to move the people before the detonation. Even knowing the winds were blowing from ground zero to the inhabited atolls in the morning of the test, officials decided to detonate Bravo. 
end quote. She went on to say, quote, A naval ship anchored off Rongelap when Bravo was exploded recorded the high level of radiation arriving at the island. The ship left without taking the Rongelap piece, knowing they were staying in a contaminated environment. Two days later, the US government returned and placed the people in a top-secret medical program to study the effects of radiation on human beings. Bravo was not an accident. There are investigations after accidents, but there were no inquiries after the Bravo event to discover how and why the people were exposed to radiation." End quote. Based on her qualifications and the amount of work she's done in the Marshall Islands, I am inclined to believe her. To me, none of these events made sense. Either it was the biggest coincidence in the history of coincidences, the most careless a group of, of professionals could have been, or it wasn't an accident at all. I guess the latter was true, and to imagine that all this was done under the banner of quote-unquote protecting humanity. This is just another of so many crimes committed in the name of winning the Cold War and by the people so eager to refer to themselves as the quote-unquote good guys, especially after the Second World War. Next week, we'll talk about the plight of the people of Rongelap at all in detail, but before I end, I'd like to throw in a bonus story. A story about the nine scientists who triggered the detonation of Bravo. Dr. John Clark commanded the nine scientists in the heavily fortified concrete bunker near the Bravo detonation site. The scientists were in radio contact with their superiors on board the USS Curtis. Helicopters had been arranged to pick them up after the test. Within seconds of the Bravo detonation, the men felt as if an earthquake had rocked the bunker as the shockwave passed through the earth. Concrete walls creaked and a pipe burst, causing seawater to gush into the sealed bunker. Fourteen minutes later, the men placed a Geiger counter outside. The series of beeps coming from the Geiger counter indicated that radiation had indeed reached the bunker. Because of this, the helicopter pickup was cancelled. It was too dangerous to send them in. The nine scientists would have to hunker down in the radioactive bunker while seawater continued flooding it. Only one room in the entire bunker wasn't radioactive. The men locked themselves inside that room and turned off the air conditioning to prevent it from pulling radioactive air into that room. The bunker's petrol-powered generator then failed, plunging the men into darkness. They also lost radio contact with the Curtis, which had moved further away to avoid radiation contamination. An agonizing 12 hours later, the Curtis moved close enough for radio contact. Officials then sent three helicopters to rescue the men. John Clark and his team draped themselves in bedsheets with holes cut out for their eyes. They ran from the bunker to their jeeps, then sped to the landing pad where helicopters picked them up and took them to the Curtis. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked my narration, get on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review.
If you haven't done so already, you should also share this show with anyone you know who might like listening to stories like these. Did you know that back in 2016, I had no idea that podcasts even existed before a friend of mine shared one with me. And now, five years later, I have one of my own. What I'm trying to say is that sometimes it takes just a single recommendation to change someone's life. You should also consider donating on patreon.com forward slash society of strife and buymeacoffee.com forward slash society of strife. I highly recommend buymeacoffee.com if you want to give just a single donation. Until next time, goodbye.